So earlier this week, I was feeling pretty good about myself um, because I felt like it's been a while since I've had done uh, some bad things that I'm in the habit of doing. And I thought, you know, I'm doing well. I'm having some victory over sin. I'm not doing this bad thing or this other bad thing. And as I was thinking about this and thanking God for that strength, and God definitely gave me the strength to do that, I began to realize or think about a couple situations where I hadn't done something good, where there was an opportunity for me to love someone and I hadn't loved them, where I knew there was a relationship that I needed to get right and I hadn't pursued to get that relationship right. And I was really convicted. In fact, I started reading this book. It was really a lot of the book that was bringing some of this conviction. It's a book that's about how we want to escape from our responsibilities. In fact, it's, I think it's called Escaping Escapism. And it's a book about the, the fact that we tend to try to get out from underneath the things that God really wants us to be under, the things that God wants us to take seriously because God wants to change us. God wants to bless us by changing us. And I was really convicted about this. And it, in the book, it talks about something that I've known for a long time, but it was a good reminder it talks about the difference between or the, the, the distinction between sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission being bad things that we do. Sins of omission being good things that we don't do. And equally, these things are sinful. Because the problem is often when we talk about sin or as we're talking about today, intentionality or really obedience is the issue. When we talk about obedience, we tend to think, oh, I, I'm trying to be obedient. I'm not doing that bad thing, and I'm not doing this bad thing, and I'm not doing that other bad thing. We think only about obedience in the sense of not committing sins of commission. And we often don't think about obedience in the sense of sins of omission, the good things that God calls us to that we neglect. Remember, when Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets, all the commands of God, he doesn't sum them up as they're all commanded in don't do this and don't do this. He says they're all summed up in doing two things, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about, the, the, it's about what we do that sums up obedience, not about what we don't do. And so when we talk about discipleship being intentional, we're talking about this reality this reality that God calls us to be intentional, to actually do the things that he wants us to do from the heart, from a heart that knows that God's changing, uh, changing us and from a heart that wants to do the things that God wants us to do. Now, the reason I put the sins of omission, the sins of commission in this kind of circular way is because what I've noticed in my Christian experience is if I am, am, am wanting to walk in obedience by not omitting the things that God wants me to do, if I'm pursuing the good things God wants me to do, I'd find myself not committing the bad things that God doesn't want me to do. And, and I think this fits with what Paul talks about in, in Galatians 5 when he says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, so often what we're wanting to do when it comes to obedience is just, just avoid bad things, stay away from bad things. But God's calling us to move towards something. He's calling us as Jesus followers to follow him in a certain lifestyle, to live a certain way, to live for a certain purpose. And if we, if we will focus on that, what happens is usually we begin to grow 
as disciples of Christ. Now, this is kind of also connected with this idea of attitude and actions. And, and there's a, there's a, a, reciprocal, a reciprocal relationship between attitude and actions, just like there is between belief and obedience. In that, when we are doing the things that we should do, what, we tend to, what tends to happen is we tend to b- believe that this is the right thing to do. And the same thing happens when, 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 with belief and obedience. When, when we say, okay, God, I want to believe I want to believe you enough to do what you say. What happens is then as we do what he says, we begin to believe more. And as we believe more, we begin to do what he says. It's this reciprocal relationship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the 20th century martyr, the German uh, theologian and uh, martyr who uh, basically wrote a great book on discipleship. If you haven't read it, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. He said, he said it this way, only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. See, we tend to believe the, 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 the first part. Yeah, I can, I'm only obeying if I actually believe God. But actually, I'm actually only, only oh, uh, believing if I obey God. Both those things work together. They're reciprocal. They feed off each other. And this is a really important aspect of discipleship. And it's funny, I think one of the reasons that we kind of push back against this is because when we talk about obedience, the first thing we hear is works. You're telling me i got to do works. I'm not saved by works, bro. I'm saved by grace. We are saved by grace. We're saved by grace for works. (laughs) But also we think of legalism. Wait a second, man. Don't put laws on me. Don't start telling me all these things I need to do. Legalism. But we're not talking about law. We're talking about love. We're talking about saying, God, I want a heart that obeys you because I know you love me and I want to love you in return. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. This is a part of discipleship, I think, where the rubber meets the road, where we really are challenged to say, okay, am I going to follow Jesus or am I not? And so I I, I don't think it's going to be what you expect, but let's look a little closer at these verses that we just read in Luke chapter 9. There's three things that I think God calls us, Jesus calls us to be intentional about. And the first one is humility. In verse 46, we pick it up where Jesus uh, understands that he probably overhears the disciples disputing about who's going to be the greatest. It's really interesting because he's just predicted his own death. Yeah, I'm going to die, guys. I'm going to die really soon. Wow, that's weird. Okay, who, who's going to be the greatest among us? You know. Now, it's funny because it says uh, that a dispute arose, and it's kind of, it's not as violent as it sounds, but there's kind of an argument and a reasoning going on about what, what, who's going to be the greatest and why one person might be greater than another. And I kind of picture Peter going, of course, I'm the greatest because I have the biggest mouth. I talk the most. Everybody wants to hear what I have to say. I'm going to be the greatest. And then you have maybe John or James say, no, we're the greatest because we're, we're the tough ones. We're not afraid to do what needs to be done. We'll see more about that in a little bit, you know. Or maybe Judas is going, obviously, I'm the greatest because I'm the one who controls the money. No, you know. And so they're all kind of debating about who's going to be the greatest. And then when it says that Jesus perceiving the thoughts of their heart, it's interesting. It's kind of a play on words in the original language. It's like he's saying, okay, he's heard them reason, but he saw the reasonings of their heart. He's understood that the issue here is the condition of their hearts. Now, this is the whole thing about humility. 
Humility is not what comes out of our mouth. It's what is the condition of our heart. You see, it's not just about self-abasement. You can, you, can, you can say things to make yourself sound humble, but the condition of your heart is still full of pride. In fact, the Bible calls this false humility. You know, like, oh, I'm no good. I can't do anything. Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't know the first thing about serving. I, I could never serve on a team. That's false humility. That's not real humility. And Jesus looks right past our reasonings and he says, what's going on? Whether our reasonings are, I want to be great or, oh, I'm wanting to be humble. He sees past those things and he looks at the condition of our hearts. So the, the issue is with our hearts is our hearts are always assuming the wrong things about greatness. We have the complete wrong definition about what greatness is. We think greatness as me being exalted. But what does Jesus do in verse 48? So what he does is he brings this child, this little child, right near him. And he says to the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now you have to understand, when, when he's taking a little child, don't think the way we think today. We think little child, and most of us think, oh, how cute. He's got a little toddler in his arm, and he's giving a cuddle. Now he's probably giving this little child a cuddle, and it is probably sweet, but they're probably going, why are you messing with that kid? Because in the, first, in the first century, the way people viewed children was children were simply property of their parents. That was their value. They were property of their parents. That was as far as it went. And so they were down on the low end of the totem pole, so to speak. And so Jesus wanted to say, listen, if you receive this child, you receive me. I am bringing this child up to a value that I myself have. I am declaring on him the value that I myself have in the sense of how you relate to him. Why? Why is he doing that? Is it just because kids are cute and they need to be kids? All that's very true, but that's not really what's going on. What's going on here is Jesus is using a child as an object lesson of what humility looks like. See, humility is like what a child would be, especially a child in the first century. A child in the first century would be someone who knows they have to submit to their parents. Their parents are complete authority. they got to do whatever their parents say. I know that sounds strange, but one day in, on a, in a place long, uh, far, far away, long, long ago, parents actually submitted to their parents. That used to happen. And so this is the way they would look in the first century. So it was a picture of submission. It, it was also a picture of dependency. A child is completely and utterly dependent, especially a small child, on its parents to, for survival, for safety. And so what Jesus is wanting to give a lesson for is he's trying to say humility is about valuing submission and dependency. That's what it's about. Now when this happens, we see John. It's interesting that it's John. We'll talk more about the fact that it's John who brings this up in, at verse 54. But John answers and says, well, you know, Master, it's like he's changing the subject. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we said, knock it off. Now this is interesting. First of all, the way this is worded, I want to be clear, is that this person who's casting out demons, this gentleman, whoever he is, unidentified gentleman, he is having success in casting out demons. That's significant. It's actually working. Because we have other instances of Scripture where people try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And if you remember that story in the book of Acts, it didn't end very well. And so this is a time where this guy's successful. And he's doing it not just in the name of Jesus who the disciples preach, but in the name of Jesus. This is a guy who seems to be doing the right thing. It's bearing fruit for the right reason. 
But the disciples say, no, there's a problem here. Uh, he's not one of us. He's not one of the ones you've chosen, Lord. So we told him, knock it off. And of course, Jesus has some words to say about that. He says, you know, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now, it's important we recognize Jesus isn't just saying, hey, anybody who says anything's done in the name of Jesus, just let it go. Because uh, we'll see right now a couple chapters after this in, in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is being really clear. He is the line in the sand. Our right relationship with him is, is what's really important. But the point that he's making here with his disciples is he's, he's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if, if what's getting done is through us, as long as it's from me and for me. So in other words, listen, humility rejoices whenever kingdom work is getting done. This is really important. I have, one of the things I've been criticized with, you, you might be shocked that I've been criticized, but I've had guys who, who are church planters who say, you know, when I told them this is what my policy tends to be. They go, that's a bad idea. If you do that, you're going to just, uh, your, your church isn't going to grow. It's not going to really work. And maybe they're right. I don't know. But here's what, I, here's what I have a policy of doing. I have a policy of having a loose grip on people who come to Servants Church. And that's not because I don't want people to stay at Servants Church. And it's not because I don't think Servants Church is doing a good thing. If I thought Servants Church was doing a bad thing or a, a redundant thing, we, we would close down and join other churches. Well, thank you. Thank you, Greg, for that encouragement. <laughs> but I don't think that. I think God's doing a, a good thing, a, a distinctive thing at Servants Church in this city. I really believe that, okay? However, I keep a loose, a loose grip on people at Servants Church because I've seen one in practice, but also I know that sometimes God has people come for a church to a church for a season. And they grow for that season, and then they go to another church, and they're fruitful in that church. We've seen this happen over and over again. Mostly it happens because we're near the university, we have people for three or four years, and they go somewhere else. They leave us, Ollie and Esther, and break our hearts. But, you know, still, we're thankful that we've had them when we've had them. But often, sometimes also, listen, one of the things that we've seen over the years is people who were what we'd call D-church, people who kind of thought, nah, I'm sick of that church stuff, religious stuff. They come to servants. They, 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 they learn to forgive and to be released from the bitterness. They grow in recognizing what the real gospel actually is. And they end up moving on to a church that might be less charismatic than us because they think we're too charismatic or more charismatic than us because they don't think we're charismatic enough. That's usually what happens. Um, or maybe they want us to be more liturgical or something. But just a place where they feel like this is maybe more where I'm called. And we're okay with that. Do you know why? As long as the kingdom is growing, we're happy. As long as people are walking with Jesus, we're happy. This is, this is, this is really our desire in wanting to walk in humility. Lord, it's not about us. We're not preaching Servants Church. We want to preach Jesus. We don't want you to follow Servants Church. We want you to follow Jesus. Now, full disclosure, next week it's about discipleship at Servants, and we're going to talk all about Servants Church specifically. But still, that's not our point. And so Jesus, I think, is saying to these guys, listen, you need to be intentional about humility. You can't just say, yeah, I should be more humble. No, the Bible says, commands us, humble yourself. Sometimes we say, God, make me humble. Well, you know, God does do that, but that's actually plan B. Plan A is humble yourself. Plan B is be humiliated by God. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. God wants to deal with you about something and you just refuse it. 
you refuse to humble yourself, and God has to do something drastic to humiliate you so that you'll finally say, God, sorry, I need to humble myself before you. We need to be intentional about humility. This is, about, this is, why, this is how we obey from our hearts. God, I want to have a right attitude towards you. Why? Well, because who are we following? We're following Jesus who exemplified humility. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Love the way it paraphrases this section. It says, Though he was God, Jesus did not think of, of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and and died a criminal's death on the cross. Do you realize in following Jesus, you are following a God who humbled himself? The God who humbled himself. So we need to be intentional about humility. We need to be seeing ourselves the way God sees us. We need to be willing to not think less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less and think of others more. That's the humility God calls us to. That's what it means to be intentional in following Him. So we need to be intentional about humility, but also, listen, we need to be intentional about mercy. Verse 51. And so it says, now it came to pass when that time had come for him to be received up. In other words, this is where the Gospel of Luke shifts. In case you didn't know, the Gospel of Luke shifts. And from here on, Luke is writing about Jesus getting to Jerusalem. He, he, that's what God sent him for. He was born to die. He's going to be uh, rejected, crucified. He's then going to be resurrected and then ascend to heaven. That's all included in this idea of time for him to be received up. When this time is going to happen, it says, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus said, okay, here's the painful direction that God has called me to. Here's the difficult sacrifice that God has called me to. And he doesn't try to avoid it. He sets his face toward it and says, okay, God, this is where we're going. Let's go there. Now, why did God call him to this? Why did God call Jesus to such a sacrifice? To show us mercy. That's why. We need mercy. And that mercy comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now what this shows us is this, listen, we're talking about mercy. Mercy requires this purposeful determination. See, this is one of the reasons why we, when we talked about that discipleship is relational and having relationships with people and how that can be difficult is that, you know, if we're going to show mercy, that means we have to be determined, okay, I'm going to endure with people that, do me wrong, that don't treat me the way I like or don't seem to want much to do with me. I'm still going to try to pursue them and love them out of mercy. There has to be something intentional. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to set my face towards that which God has called me to do, which is to love one another. Then what happens in verse 52, it says that, so what happens, Jesus sends messengers before his face uh, and basically, he sends people to, on this big journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, they're going to go through Samaria, and they're probably looking for a place to stay the night in Samaria. So as they're traveling, he sends guys, you guys kind of run ahead and see if you can book us a place to stay. And when you would book a place to stay, what would happen is you'd have to say, okay, oh, how are you going to stay? What's the purpose of your journey? Oh, we're, we're staying for one night, and then we're heading off to Jerusalem to worship. 
This causes a problem. He sends people ahead to do this. They get to Samaria to prepare this place for him. But it says in verse 53, they did not receive him. Why? Because his journey was set for Jerusalem. Here's what's going on. What's going on is that the Samaritans had their own temple. They were kind of half Jewish, half pagan, and they felt like they could sort of worship God in their own temple. Of course, we know from John chapter 4 that's not the case. Jesus said that wasn't the case. And so they were really offended when people would say, we're passing by your temple and going to the real temple in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus is doing this, they're offended. They don't want him to, to be there. And so when this happens, in verse 54 it says, when his disciples, James, and here we go, John again, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and fry these suckers? Okay, that's a paraphrase, but you get where I'm coming from. It's interesting because they referred to Elijah because this is something that Elijah had done against God's enemies. So here's what they're doing. They're using a true scriptural story to justify a wicked motive. This is easily done. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that it's John who's doing this. You see, the reason the Samaritans are rejecting Jesus is because the Samaritans are committed to their false religion. Is that something that God's going to judge? Is God going to judge people who are committed to false religion? He is. So the fact that they would think that's worthy of judgment itself isn't wrong. In fact, that's, that's something that we need to be aware of. But what's interesting to me here is the fact that they are using this reality to justify a sinful attitude. We want these suckers dead. Really what was going on was their own prejudice. This was really a, a, an issue of racial bigotry. They're Samaritans. They're half-breeds. We don't want to be with them. They were using Scripture to justify racism. God forgive us if we ever do this. God grant us repentance if we ever do this. God change us today if we're doing this. What's also interesting to me about this is that it's John who's doing it. James and John. You know who John is, right? John wrote the Gospel of John, the Epistles 1, 2, 3 John, the book of Revelation. You know what John's known as? He's known as, the, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote more about love than any other disciple. He's known as the disciple of love. You know what that shows us? How radically Jesus changed John. If you're a bigot, if you're a, if you're a racist, we want you to know that the Lord loves you and he can change you and deliver you from your racism. <laughs> if you're a classist, ah, we're, I'm working class mate, can't have nothing to do with posh people. God can change you. Oh, I'm, I'm middle class. We, we get on with everybody. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> God can change you. There's nobody upper class here, so we're okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but there's some truth to this, isn't there? We need God to change us because what happens is we can be so about the Scripture, and you know from last week we're all about the Scripture, that discipleship is informational. We have to believe, to be Jesus followers, we have to believe that God has spoken and we're hungry to hear what God says. But if we're not after Jesus, we can twist what God says to justify almost anything. That's not discipleship. That's not being intentional about mercy. Now, what does Jesus say to these guys? 
In verse 55, it says, he says, but he turned and he rebuked them. Now, now, you guys will know what this means. Do you remember when you were a kid and mom or dad gave you the look? You know what I'm talking about? The, you know, the look, you know, like stopped you in your tracks. You knew you were busted. You knew they knew exactly what you were doing. They didn't have to say anything. It was just like, maybe they'd say your name, John, or actually it's John Charles. You get both names when you're in trouble, right? They give you the look. This is Jesus giving the look. That's what's actually implied here. He's turning and going, what? What? And he says to them, listen, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. That's a polite way of saying you're demonic right now. He's saying, listen, He says, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, it's interesting because the reality here is Jesus is saying, you don't get it. I'm not here to bring judgment. Now, is Jesus going to judge? Seriously. Yes, he is. That's the book of Revelation gives us a hope that Jesus is going to judge. It's a hope because there's no justice without a just judge. And it's good news that he's going to judge. But it's good news as well that he's taken on the judgment on himself so that we don't have to be under the judgment of God, that he can be the just judge and the justifier of sinners like us because of his mercy. This is why James, when James is talking about not so much racial uh, division, but really probably classism, really, in James chapter 2. James, he writes this about God's, about judging one another. He says, but judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now what he's saying is this, listen. He's wanting them to understand, James is not giving a threat But a warning, don't you understand, if you are judging and not showing mercy, what it shows about the condition of your heart, do you understand the mercy you've been shown? Do you understand how much mercy that you've been shown? Now right now some of you are going, okay, I'm trying to think of the mercy I was shown. Okay, when did I become a Christian? How bad was I before I became a Christian? And you're thinking of the mercy shown before you were converted. I'm talking about the mercy God showed you this morning. I'm talking about the mercy God's showing you right now for thinking, I have to think about when I need mercy. (laughs) Guys, we are always dependent upon the mercy of God. The Bible says in the book of Lamentations, it's because of his compassions that we stand. It's because of his mercies being new every morning that we faint not. God's mercy endures forever. Mercy triumphs over judgment, not because judgment's bad, but because judgment's so good. The only way we're going to avoid judgment is mercy. Therefore, listen, if we're going to follow the merciful one, he calls us to be intentional about showing mercy. We don't show mercy because the crime done against us is so small. We show mercy because the crimes we've been forgiven of are so large. Therefore, we show mercy to one another. See, mercy seeks rescue, not ruin. That's exactly what he means when he says this. This is what he would say later on in the book of Luke. He would say, the Son of Man, again, speaking of himself, has come to seek and save that which is lost. Do you see how those two things go together? Seek and save? 
Mercy pursues people. We need to be intentional about mercy. Now lastly, Jesus here is wanting us to be intentional about where our priorities are supposed to be. It happens in verse 57 as they continue to walk in the path. Going to this other village, it says that as they happen to the journey to the road, that someone says to Jesus, remember he's got his disciples and people know he's, see him as this great rabbi teacher. Many people already saw him as the, as the Messiah, as God's chosen king. And so people would, crowds would gather around him as he's traveling from place to place, as he's heading towards Jerusalem. And, and so these people come up and this man comes to him in verse 57 and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Ever sat in a church service or listened to a podcast and heard a message that so inspired you, thought, that's it, I'm living for Jesus. I'm going for it. I'm, I'm excited about Jesus, man. That's it, I'm going for it. I picture this guy like this. Lord, I want to follow you. You rock. You know, I just, you're the guy. I want to follow you. And Jesus knows our hearts. He knows this man's heart. And so he says, well, okay, here's where I'm going. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus, with his priorities, he was heading straight to Jerusalem, even though it meant that he wouldn't live as the king that he was. And a very simple way to say is he was surrendering material comforts for the sake of saving others. Being intentional about our priorities, being intentional about following Jesus means we do the same thing. We are willing to forsake. We're willing to surrender material comforts. Now, this doesn't mean that we're called to poverty necessarily. To be truthful, none of us here are poor. And I'm not devaluing your money problems. I, seriously, I promise you I'm not. And we don't want you to feel ashamed about your money problems per se. Okay, we, we'd love to help you with your money problems. Some of that is not your fault, and even when it is your fault, there's great mercy. So we're not wanting to condemn anybody about their money problems. But the fact is, we're not poor in the West, are we? And God doesn't say, okay, I'll need to be now homeless and truly poor, or you're not really a Christian. That's not the point here. It's not poverty theology. But it is about us being willing to surrender. It is part of us counting the cost. It is part of us about being intentional, about following Jesus. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. I like that proviso. Just know you'll get beat up in the process. But And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that if we have a mindset that says, okay, Lord, I'm going to be poor for you. I'm going to be poor for you, so then you'll give me something in return. God, it will never be the debtor to anyone. That's not the point. The point is to say, Lord, I want to follow you and be willing to surrender any material comforts for the sake of benefiting the kingdom. If this is going to help people get saved, Lord, I want to do it. If this is going to help people grow in you, Lord, I want to do it. I'm going to sacrifice material comfort. Sometimes that means giving money. Sometimes that means giving time. Sometimes that means just saying no to something you want now and say, well, maybe I'll say no to that now and we'll see what God does four or five years from now because I want to commit to what God's called me to do now. 
This is what he's, he's talking about. We, you have to be intentional about that. The group of churches we're a part of, Calvary Chapel, has the reputation of never talking about money because they don't want anybody to feel pressured about money. I'm, I'm, I've changed that. Because the thing is, it's not that I want you to feel pressured about money, but I do want you to realize Jesus calls us to follow him with our wallets. To just say, okay, Lord, my time is yours, my money is yours, my life is yours, so I want to be willing to be willing to surrender whatever material comforts you call me to for the sake of your kingdom. You know what that requires, requires us to do? To get on our face before God and say, what would you have me do? Lord, how can I follow you? So then another person comes along and Jesus says to him, why don't you follow me? And the man says to him in verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, he's not being morbid. Let me go kill my dad and then I'll be free. He's not being morbid. That's not what's happening, okay? This could be one of two things. One is the burial sort of tradition of the first century would be to, if, if a father died, they'd kind of sort of mummify him in a sense, wrap him up, stick him in a tomb. A year later then, they would take the bones and put them in a family sort of uh, area where the family bones would be buried. So it could be that his father died a year uh, recently and he had to wait a year so he could go do this really important cultural expectation is what's going on. Or it could simply be that he was taking care of his parents. You know, they were now sort of unable to work for themselves and living with him, and so he thought, well, I've got I to take care of my parents. It's probably the first one, I think. Either way, what's interesting is that Jesus says something pretty harsh, or at least it sounds harsh. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the gospel. In other words, what he's saying here is, he's saying, listen, let the spiritual dead bury their, their own dead. But you, if you're spiritually alive, you come follow me. You come do what I call you to do. Jesus calls us to a priority of relationship that says, Lord, you have to be above anyone else. That's tough, isn't it? But it is, is, is what God calls us to. I, I see this really as, as a, a willingness of us to be, be intentional about forsaking cultural expectations. That's hard. It's hard to be countercultural. Now, some of you want to be countercultural because you, you, you're bitter about feeling marginalized growing up, and so you want to stay marginalized. I'm not joking. Some of you guys feel that way, and that's not good. Some of you just have personalities who like to be marginalized, so you want to be countercultural. That's not necessarily helpful either. But some of us are so afraid to be marginalized, so afraid to be unliked. We don't want to be countercultural, and yet we have to be willing to forsake cultural expectations if those things keep us from following Jesus. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, lastly, what happens is another comes to him in verse 61. They said, Lord, I will follow you, but first, let me first go and bid them farewell that are at my house. Do you notice that both of these guys said the same thing? Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first. When I was in, when I was in going to Bible college, uh, at that time it was all really younger people, you know, a bunch of guys that were like 19, 20, 21. And, and of course, all of us were single and all of us wanted to get married really bad, which I'll be really blunt and frank. It's basically, we wanted to have sex. That's what it was. We say we wanted to get married. Oh, it's so romantic. That's not true. Actually, what we wanted is to find legal sex. That's kind of what most of these young boys wanted to do. And so as that was being exposed, we were repenting of that attitude. And, and, and then we kind of realized, too, what kind of attitude is that? God, we used to say, don't come back, Jesus, until we get married. <laughs> I 
You know what that means? I want sex more than I want you. That's exactly what that means. So maybe the girls who wanted to get married weren't like the guys, and they were just like, no, I just want companionship. All right, that sounds a bit nicer, but still, you know what that means? I want a husband more than I want you, Jesus. That's what that means. Let me first, let me first, let me first, Lord, do this. Let me first make a a name for myself. Let me first get a house. Let me first accomplish this thing or that thing. Let me first, that let me first is what keeps us, is what exposes us as those who aren't being intentional about our priorities. Hey, this is, the, this is what happens. God says, here's good things. Marriage is a good thing. Sex within marriage is a good thing. Having a home or a family or getting that degree or accomplishing this thing in your business, those are all good things. But what happens often with us because of our hearts is a good thing becomes the enemy of the best thing. The best thing being us, being with Jesus forever, knowing him forever. This is why Jesus says to them, listen, no one having been, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So has anybody here ever plowed a field? Anybody ever plowed a field? couple? Where's Josh? Josh has never plowed a field. He's with Jasper. Yeah, there, Josh, you plowed a field, haven't you? Yeah. Mike's plowed a field. Well, you, you guys will back me up on this. When you're plowing, it's, it's really good to have, you want straight rows, because in having straight rows, it's, it's more economical for watering and harvesting. It makes more sense to do that, right? So the, the straighter your rows. And if you're plowing, the way you plow straight rows is to not go, is that straight? Is that working good? It's to look straight ahead. If you look back, you go off. And if you go off, not all the ground's getting turned over like it needs to be turned over. So Jesus is saying, listen, you're not a good plowman if you keep looking back. Do you know what looking back is? It's the attitude, let me first. Let me first. That's looking back. We need to be intentional about what God has for us. We need to be intentional about following after Jesus. We need to believe that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from him and he will not withhold any good thing from those who follow after him. Lord, let me first just follow after you and everything else will fall into place. That's what it means to be a disciple. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter three. He said, one thing I do Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is not talking about farming techniques. He's talking about following him. He's talking about the value of the kingdom, of God's rule over us forever, where righteousness reigns, where justice is complete, where love is perfect. That's what he calls us to. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. Now, at this point, some of you are going, gosh, I feel horrible. Thanks a lot, John. I fall so short. Welcome to the club. (laughs) We all fall short. But this is why we come to Jesus. Because not only does he forgive us for our shortcomings, but he changes us. The reason he calls us to follow him, the reason he calls us to 
Be intentional to intentionally humble ourselves before him and, and to not think of ourselves higher than we ought to. The reason he calls us to be intentional about mercy, both receiving it, God, I need your mercy so desperately, and showing it, Lord, you've shown me so much, I want to show others. And the reason he calls us to be intentional about our priorities is because he's so good and he wants to do a good work in us. Do you know anything in this world that offers the same? I don't. This is the Jesus that we are calling you to follow. This is the Jesus that is calling you to follow him.